The Gilded Age certainly wasn't just a period in history that took place only in New York. New York was indeed its social and financial center. However, fortunes were made and lost, faux French chateaus built and burned, and society queens and princes took their thrones and were sometimes dethroned in the rapidly growing cities all across the country. San Francisco found itself coated in gold dust from the miners' rush earlier in the 19th century, and cities like St. Louis along the Mississippi found wealth and prestige from shipping and trade. But one city rose to particular prominence as it sat on the shores of Lake Michigan, Chicago. Chicago had its own story of how it grew, competed with New York, the Emerald City of the East, and in the end achieved its own renowned and cultural and social reputation. Today's story focuses on one particular woman who rose to the top of not only Chicago's increasingly elite society, but at least, according to some aristocratic Europeans, as our guest today will explain, she deserved the title of Uncrowned Queen of All America. She was Bertha Honore Palmer, and I'm so excited to be joined by my guest today, architectural and social historian Tom Miller, to take a look at the life and work of Bertha Palmer. While she can be compared in some ways to New York's famed Mrs. Astor, Bertha Palmer was most definitely her own woman. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we sit down for a nice cup of tea and a chat about the world's upstairs and downstairs in the grand drawing rooms and dodgy alleyways of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. The opening of the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago on May 1st, 1893, was meant to honor the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in this Western world. And honor it, it did. But much more than that, the fair was a moment that captured the attention of the entire world. It was a celebration of civilization, of culture, of technology, of advancement, and of the place Chicago itself had now taken in America's national landscape. Comprised of nearly 200 neoclassical exhibition halls and pavilions built specifically for the education and connected by pools, canals, and lagoons, the fairground gained the name the White City, given the appearance of that brilliant light-colored stone that was used in its building. The fair ran for six months, and over 25 million people came to view the lives and lifestyles, achievements, and art of representatives from 46 countries. The Women's Pavilion was one of the most prominent attractions at the exposition, bringing together the contributions of visual and applied art, literature, music, and science created by American women. The wall murals inside the building itself were painted by none other than Mary Cassatt, the American-born Impressionist artist. On that opening day in 1893, standing regally at the top of the stairs at the entrance to the Women's Pavilion, a woman in a white silk gown graciously greeted the lengthy line of dignitaries, heads of state, and aristocrats queuing up to enter. This was Bertha Palmer. And what was perhaps 
unique about this line of the international who's who is that Bertha Palmer knew many of them personally. Joining me to discuss the world of Bertha Palmer and just how she managed to rise to the role of social queen and that she was so much more than that is my returning guest today, architectural and social historian Tom Miller. Tom's show on The Real Mrs. Astor has been one of my most popular shows, and I know this one will be too. If you're a follower of Tom's extraordinary blog, Daytonian in Manhattan, you will share my admiration for his work. If you haven't yet discovered it, I encourage you to sign up today so you don't miss a single post. Tom posts a unique history of a different building every single day, except Sunday. Tom began his blog writing about buildings and locations throughout New York's history back in 2009 and astonishingly now has over 3,500 posts. Tom is also the author of two books of architectural history, Seeking New York and Seeking Chicago. And Tom and I have returned to the setting where we recorded the show on Mrs. Astor, the library of the Salma Gundy Club on Lower Fifth Avenue here in New York. Tom, welcome back to the show. I am so glad you're joining me. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to have you back here. So, so Tom, let's just dive in here because there are so many questions. Now, it's easy in some ways to use Caroline Astor as a familiar example to give some context uh, to Bertha Palmer. But how does that comparison really fit? We'll be spending a lot of time in the show talking about Bertha's unique story, but how were Carolyn Astor and Bertha really similar? Let's start with that. Well, the similarities are the fact that they were both the queens of society in their respective cities. Uh, both of them were massively wealthy through their husbands, and uh, both of them reigned over society. And that's pretty much where the similarities stop. What I think is so fascinating here is that there really were a number of defining moments in Bertha Palmer's life, particularly in which she stepped up, she took charge, she crafted roles that other women might not have done in the same position. And I'm sure that's true for Mrs. Astor. Mrs. Astor wouldn't have done so many of the things that Bertha Palmer did. Do you agree with that? Do you think Absol that's right? Absolutely. She was described as an entertaining machine and that was her entire life. Her entire life was entertaining and social activities. She had absolutely no interest in anything, a business or a social reform or anything like that. She was simply a socialite. But Bertha was different. Bertha was quite different. So let's start with Bertha's story. How did, it, how did her story begin? And how, most importantly, how did she land in Chicago? She was born in 1849 in Louisville, Kentucky. Her father, Henry Hamilton Honore, was what in those days was called a merchant prince. So she was born into a life of privilege with a very fine house and beautiful furnishings and artwork. She had a luxurious existence for the first six years of her life. But then in 1855, her father made a very bold and daring move by moving his family to Chicago. Uh, he wanted to get into the real estate business there because Chicago, which was a frontier town at the time, had the potential of expanding into a major city. He foresaw that. But Chicago in 1855 was not a very pleasant place 
for a six-year-old girl and a four-year-old girl because Bertha had a a, um, sister, Ida, who was two years younger. Well, what was Chicago like? I'm I'm so fascinated. I know it was very, very different from New York. Can you describe it to us? It most certainly was different from New York. As I said, it was a frontier town. It was at the very edge of the Wild West. There were very few women in the in the town at the time, uh, other than married women who had come east or come west. The unmarried women, as Mrs. Honore would find out, were not very interested in taking jobs as domestics. They could make money doing other pursuits, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the town was populated on and off by cowboys who came in from the Wild West, bringing their herds here to the stockyards of Chicago. It was not really a city. It was, a, at best, a town. And it was, it was pretty wild and woolly in 1855. So we have this young girl, Bertha, and, and of course her sister, daughter of a wealthy family. She had to be trained. She had to be schooled. And that's a fascinating part of this story. Can you talk a little bit about where she went to school and how and when? Because that that told a very gave a very interesting aspect of her to her life. I think it did. It molded her life to the for the rest of her life. Uh, her parents sent her and Ida, at this very tender age, off to Georgetown outside of Washington D.C. Uh, to a exclusive girls boarding school. And they stayed there year-round. And just like Carolyn Astor here in New York, who went to Mrs. Beezy's school, a private girls' school, they were taught all of the fundamentals, the ABCs, everything you would learn in a regular school. But they were also taught deportment and dancing and French and art appreciation. And even more importantly, because it was a Southern school, they were taught all of those inflections of diplomacy and coyness that would create a Southern belle. It was that tact and charm and diplomacy that she learned in a Southern girls' school that would carry on throughout her life and change so many aspects of her life. And that's interesting because we'll come back to how she used that a little bit later on. But then the Civil War comes. And of course, that's not a good place to be in the (laughs) South or in D.C. So she goes back to Chicago. And when she's a very young girl, she actually meets her future husband. Would you share that story? I think that's a fascinating moment, too. It is a fascinating story because Potter Palmer, who was a Quaker businessman from the East Coast, had, like her father, had come to Chicago because he saw the potential in this growing city. He opened up a dry goods store. And he was amazing in his marketing because he knew that there were people like Mrs. Honore, who were well-to-do women who now were stuck in the far West with no place to find the finer things. So he sold things like Parisian bonnets and French gowns. So in 1862, when Uh, Bertha was just 13 years old. Her mother took her to Potter Palmer's dry goods store, and they actually met Potter Palmer. He waited until 1870 when he was 44 years old and she was 21, and they married. 
That's a pretty romantic story, right, Tom? Absolutely. You know, I find it fascinating insight into Potter Palmer, too, in the kind of merchandise that he sold, because it's this whole sense of entrepreneurialism. There are sort of shades of the asters in this, too, because it's never what's happening now. It's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And he certainly, and we see that later, I think, too, with his hotel business. But gosh, what a romantic story to marry this, this young woman. So then, after they're married, he builds the famous Palmer House Hotel. Well, he had actually already built it. The year they were married, the the Palmer House Hotel was completed. He had sold his dry goods business to his partner, Marshall Field. And, of course, we know what became of that. And he went into real estate like Bertha's father had done. He became, by 1870, the largest landowner in Chicago. And he built the magnificent Palmer House Hotel, which was completed in 1870, the year they were married, and they moved into it. And what was this hotel like? This certainly had to be the most luxurious thing Chicago it had was the most, seen. The most extravagant, exclusive hotel on, well, west of the East Coast. It was modeled after any European or um, fine hotel in New York, Philadelphia, or Boston. It was a magnificent hotel with crystal chandeliers and marble pillars. It was beautiful. So there was a new population that was coming into Chicago at this point, right? Travelers or business people? By 1870, was- yes. By 1870, of course, Chicago was established already as a major hub for materials that were coming from the West Coast to the East Coast. They would come through Chicago, initially get on boats to travel through the Um, the Great Lakes, and then to the Erie Canal and to the West. And then later, by now, the trains were already coming out here. So yes, there was starting to be already in 1870 an actual society. So now we're really entering Gilded Age time, right? But the timing of that hotel, wow, 1871, that was a bad year. It was a bad year. Just months after they moved into the brand new hotel, the entire downtown of Chicago was wiped out by the Great Chicago Fire. The beautiful Palmer House Hotel was ashes, as was everything else that Potter Palmer had. He was wiped out financially. He Everything was gone. And this is when we first see Bertha Palmer, a step up to the plate as a businesswoman. It's interesting because she had an innate business sense It certainly wasn't something that young girls were taught at private boarding schools, business education. She simply knew what she was doing. And it was Bertha who wired the East Coast and got a $1.7 million loan, the largest amount of a personal loan ever given out up to that date in America. It's about $63 million in today's money. And so Bertha, now with she and her husband, had all of this money with which to rebuild the the uh, Potter Palmer real estate empire. What I find fascinating about that is now we really start to see her character. This isn't about throwing dinner parties and balls. This is really seeing who she is and what she's able to do and how she's able to negotiate and her diplomatic skills, right? Yes, it must have taken a great deal of diplomacy to get these male bankers on the East Coast to give her $63 million, you know, in today's right, money, right. she had to do some talking. Now, Potter Palmer himself also helped tremendously sort of revitalize Chicago after this fire. What were some of the he things that he did? He absolutely did. And remember, I said he owned the most 
the largest amount of land. Uh, so now with this new money, he not only rebuilt the Potter, uh, the Palmer House Hotel, even larger and grander, but he widened State Street to an avenue-wide street, for instance, as we see it today. He reoriented some of the streets into a grid pattern so that the whole loop area of downtown Chicago that we know today, very much of it is because of his architecture. Now, I'm really fascinated to look now at the life of Bertha because women of this social class and certainly with this amount of money, what they did with money, and she did some very significant charity work. She was just not off buying worth gowns. And and I think this is really interesting and also, also a big point of differentiation with Carolyn Astor. Absolutely. And by the way, before we move on to that, I'll just point out that when the Palmer House was first rebuilt and the 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 Palmers were getting back on their feet Bertha actually worked in the kitchens this wealthy socialite actually went down there and baked pies and muffins for until the hotel actually got going once it was going and she was everyone was back on their feet the Palmers anyway then she focused on her charity work she was very very concerned with the underclasses the lower classes she was a great supporter of Jane Addams Whole House. It was one of her favorite charities. Uh, and she spent a great deal of time at Whole House uh, working with these indigent families. She lobbied for safe and uh, affordable milk uh, for the, these tenement living families. She worked to get care for the children whose mothers were incarcerated because they may have stolen a loaf of bread, or they may have been put in the poorhouse simply because of the crime of being poor. So these children were now left without guardianship, so she worked on that. She lobbied to have uh, kindergartens uh, for these poor children, for instance. So these are all the sorts of things, of course, that on the East Coast, Mrs. Astor was snubbing her nose at, you know, her, her sister-in-law, Charlotte Astor, used to go down to the missions on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And Carolyn Astor openly derided her for that, saying it was below her station. So here we see another great gap between Carolyn Astor and Bertha Palmer. I love the image of Bertha Palmer baking the pies and cakes in the kitchen because, and also in her charity work, she was a very hands-on woman, right? Absolutely. Yes, she was right down there. She didn't mind getting her sleeves dirty, if you will, if it got done what had to be done. So in New York, we certainly had the great dichotomy between the mansions of the Astors and the mansions of the Vanderbilt. And then, of course, that the terribly inhuman conditions going on in the Lower East Side and other parts of, of the city. Was there that similar dichotomy in Chicago? There absolutely was. She And this is why she was so, so concerned, uh, especially with these children. She was one of the founders of the uh, Chicago Women's Club, which sounds like a social organization, but it was not. It was a reform group that worked to get laws passed and to get reforms done to help these tenement um, living people. 
One of the projects that uh, I had read that Potter Palmer worked on was the creation of Lakeshore Drive, the beautiful drive along the lake, much like we have Riverside Drive here in New York. But he also built a castle for himself and and Bertha Palmer Castle. Would you talk a little bit about that? Because can you describe it for listeners? And then I want to talk about the interior design because that was fascinating to me. Yeah. In 1882, uh, around 1880, actually, Palmer bought up all of the land along the um, the lakefront, which became Lakeshore Drive. And as you said, he pretty much modeled it after Riverside Drive in New York City. So we had the water, and next to the water was a manicured English-type uh, park for promenading. Then there was a drive, and on the other side of the drive, he envisioned mansions. So in 1882, he started the what Chicagoans called the Palmer Castle. It was designed by Frost and Cobb, and it was um, supposed to come in at uh, $90,000. It came in over a million, which is about, I think, $23 million in today's money. And it was a, a castle. It had a crenellated tower. It had leaded windows. It was a magnificent, magnificent house. It was the most expensive and the most lavish house in Chicago in the time. So, Tom, I remember hearing you say at one point that the Palmer Castle had no doorknobs. Is that really true? That is true. There were no exterior doorknobs on the castle, and that was for a very good reason, uh, because there was always a butler inside who would open the door from the inside. And by the way, not having doorknobs on the outside was also a security measure. I don't know if that would have worked in New York. It did work in New York. (laughs) It did work in New York. The Sloan House on East 72nd Street had no doorknobs, really? for instance. Yes. I love that. And one of the trends, correct, at the period was to have rooms reflecting different periods. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, this was right smack in the middle of the aesthetic period. The interiors of this house were done by Herter Brothers, who just a few years earlier had designed all of the interiors for the Vanderbilt Triple palace on Fifth Avenue between 51st and 52nd Street. Herter Brothers was the most esteemed uh, decorating company, interior decorating firm of the aesthetic period. And when we talk about that, you know, today we talk about interior designers. They pick out your drapes, put a lamp and a rug, and that's done. Well, in the aesthetic period, a interior design firm not only designed the rooms, the ceilings, the walls, the staircases, the built-in cabinetry, they designed and manufactured all of the furniture for those rooms. In the aesthetic period, it was very fashionable to have period rooms. Almost obligatory, you would have one Asian-themed room, such as a Turkish smoking room or some such thing like that. In the Palmer Castle, there were there was a Renaissance library. There was an English dining room. There was a Louis XVI salon and on and on. So we had all these wonderful period rooms in this house. Now, one of the most important rooms, I think, in in any mansion, certainly, of this period was the ballroom, which also doubled as an art gallery, as a picture gallery. And that was true, too, of the Palmer Castle, right? But Bertha's picture collection was a little different, right? It certainly was different. And you're right. Every house of this caliber would have a ballroom. Ballrooms were used infrequently, so they also doubled as a a picture uh, gallery. 
it was absolutely obligatory for every millionaire of this period to have a an art collection. If you've seen pictures of Carolyn Astor's picture gallery ballroom, you'll remember that all the paintings were almost frame to frame crammed in there from ceiling to floor. But the point is that she had very little of quality because people like Carolyn Astor really weren't all that interested in art. They just wanted to have an art collection because it was necessary. That was not the case with Bertha. Bertha was amazingly educated on modern art. She was perhaps the most educated, at least private individual in America on Impressionism, which of course was modern art at the time. Her collection was the largest collection of French Impressionism in the country. She had 29 Claude Monet's. And of course, she didn't buy these from from galleries. She walked into the studios of Claude Monet and walked out with 29 paintings. Nine of those were from the Haystack series. She had 11 Edward Degas. She had Mary Cassatt, who was a very close friend of hers. She had Rodin's and Renoir's and on and on and on. It was a magnificent, magnificent collection. So yes, her collection was much different than most socialites' collections. Do you have any ideas or opinion about what intrigued her about this new art, about Impressionism, about what was going on in the art world? You know, I don't know what drew her to that. Although at some point in her travels to Europe, uh, she began friendships with these um, these artists, and those friendships lasted throughout her lifetime. And so now, Tom and I are going to take a little break. I'm going to refill our teacups here, and we'll be back in just a moment. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today, we're looking at the life and the work of Bertha Palmer, who some may say was just Chicago's Mrs. Astor. But that is not, as my guest has explained today, true at all. So, Tom, we're back. And I want to lead us now into a really very important moment here. It leads us up to sort of the planning and the execution of the great Chicago Columbian Exposition in 1893 that I mentioned at the top of the show. So Bertha was actually tapped to uh, be involved in this early on, and she wasn't sure she wanted to. Can you talk a little bit about what that story was? She was approached in 1890 uh, to had the women's pavilion of the Columbian Exposition. And I think it's easy to see why they chose her. This was a woman with an incredible business sense and a wherewithal to get things done. She wasn't all that eager to do it initially. She was sort of a little prodded by her son and her husband at the time. By the way, by now she had two sons, Potter uh, Palmer Jr. and Honore. So she did accept the position. And in 1891, the next year, she was invited to the White House by President Benjamin Harrison, who gave her letters of introduction from the White House, from the president, to all of the heads of state of Europe. And off she and Potter went to Europe to visit all of these crowned heads of Europe to convince them to participate in the Columbian Exposition. 
what an assignment, what a job, what a great job that is, right? So Harrison must have really trusted her. He must have seen her diplomatic skills. And so she and Potter go. And what happens? What kind of connections does she make? Here again, we see this wonderful charm and diplomacy come out in Bertha Palmer. One of the newspapers said that they put up at a hotel like any other American And then very soon they would be invited to court. And very soon after that, in almost every one of the capital cities, they would be invited to remove to the palace. So they were actually given rooms in the royal residences. While she was in Europe, she charmed the heads of state to the point that she became friends, intimate friends with many, especially the women uh, of the royal families. As you said earlier, Uh, In Russia, she was called the uncrowned queen of America. And the newspaper reports of Bertha Palmer's uh, travels during that period don't mention Potter Palmer at all. They only talk about Mrs. Potter Palmer going and speaking to these heads of states and convincing them uh, to participate in the Columbian Exhibition. And she clearly did a good job because they did. And they came and they greeted her and she greeted them now. Now, Tom, the story of Bertha gets really juicy because even though so much of it's been centered on Chicago, she and Potter, too, did come to Newport. But there were a couple false starts there. So can you talk a little bit about what happened when Bertha and Potter tried to enter into the world of Newport society? Yes. In 1896, they rented a a house, a cottage called Arlay in Newport. This was the first time that they had come to the East Coast for the summer. And that year, she was totally snubbed by the East Coast society. Uh, she was considered not only an innkeeper's wife, she was, also con- she was also from Chicago, which was still considered a cow town by people from Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. The New York papers used to refer to uh, Chicago at the time as Porkopolis, they would make fun when when Chicago was starting to uh, build an art museum. They made fun of that, that someone in Chicago would even know what art was, despite the fact that uh, Mrs. Palmer had the most magnificent collection of art in America. So she was snubbed in 1896. They came back to Arlay the next year in 1897, and the same thing happened. So Bertha Palmer knew exactly what to do. Over the winter season, the winter social season of uh, 1897-98, she wrote to her friends in Europe. The next year when she opened Arlay, shortly afterwards, she had a house guest in the form of Prince Albert of Belgium. Right after him came the Count of Turin, the uh, nephew of the King of Italy, and on and on. So all of a sudden, Arlay was having all of these royal titles coming and visit, and suddenly people were taking notice of Bertha Palmer, but she still had an ace up that sleeve of hers. In 1899, she didn't take Arlay. She and Potter rented a house which was right next door, not coincidentally, to uh, Beechwood, the home of Carolyn Astor. Now, During her lifetime, Ida, by the way, had married 
Ida, her sister, had married Frederick Dent Grant, the son of former President Ulysses S. Grant. They had a daughter, Julia Dent Grant. Julia and her aunt Bertha were close, close companions, and um, Julia would accompany her aunt to Europe summer after summer. Julia and Bertha. Bertha. Perfect. And so, of course, because Bertha knew all of these titles, uh, she met all of these, these royals. And Julia Dent Grant became engaged to Prince Michael of Russia. And the wedding took place in Newport, not in Washington, D.C., where her parents lived, not in Chicago at the Palmer Castle, but in Newport. Bertha knew what to do. So you can imagine a royal wedding, a a Russian prince. You can imagine the nobility that came to stay at Bertha Palmer's cottage in Newport that summer. You can imagine the amount of invitations to teas and receptions that Bertha Palmer and her husband were suddenly getting, who had been snubbed for the last uh, three years. This is so delicious, Tom. And this is all right next to Carolyn Astor's mansion, right? right Those next Newport door folks to must have Astor. been crazy with all of a sudden all this royalty down the street. The jealousy must have been <laughs> palpable. On the day of the wedding, uh, one of the newspapers, I think it was the New York Times, said that the police had trouble controlling the crowds who were trying to get a glance at this royal couple. And all of these socialites who had snubbed Bertha Palmer had crawled on their bellies, so to speak, trying to get an invitation, if not to the wedding, at least to the reception afterwards. Yeah, it's funny who turns into your best friend when something like this happens, right? Wow, she got revenge after all, right? So so Potter Palmer died sadly in 1902, and I'm fascinated by the terms of his will because that was a little bit of a break in tradition too, right? It was very unusual. He gave his entire fortune, his entire estate to Bertha. That was highly unusual. Normally, when we're talking about a fortune of this size, it would go, the bulk of it would go to the eldest son. That kept the the fortune intact. Um, The younger son, in this case, since there were only two, would get a smaller fortune. The widow would normally get the real property, which is the houses, and life interest in the estates and living in the estates. That wasn't the case here. The lawyers were concerned because Bertha was so much younger than her husband. And they told him, you know, that she could get married, meaning if she did, then that husband would get the fortune and the the two Palmer boys could be cut out of the fortune. Potter Palmer said, well, if she does get married, her husband's going to need the money. (laughs) Probably true. So after his death, uh, Bertha goes to Europe for a number of years. I think it was about eight years. We can assume, I suppose, it was because of grief. She didn't want the Chicago connections. But then it gets even more interesting, right, Tom? Just when you can't imagine. She comes back, and then what? She does. She, She did. She came back in 1910. She told friends that she was weary of living abroad. And it was in 1910, in the winter of 1910, that she picked up the newspaper and she saw that there was land for sale in southern Florida. Now, her friends all advised her against buying land in Florida. It was all undeveloped. Much of it was swampland. But Bertha Palmer was Bertha Palmer. And here again, we see her business sense come to to the top. 
she bought 240,000 acres of southern Florida land, about a third of Sarasota County. This was all undeveloped, soggy, swampy land. She then hired experts from around the country. She created a canal system to drain the, the swamps. She laid out farms, small farms for startup farmers. Once again, we see that Bertha Palmer is interested in those who don't have as much money as some, the more privileged classes. She did roads and, and, of course, plots. She brought in agricultural experts who introduced new breeds of cattle that could uh, thrive in this tropical environment and new sorts of plants and things, again, that would, would thrive. Citrus plants, for instance, and, and things like that. She single-handedly transformed that area of southern uh, Florida into a thriving, thriving community. She also established her own uh, estate down there called the Oaks. And Bertha Palmer was one of the first millionaires to start spending her winters in southern Florida. And if you've ever been to Lakeshore Drive in the winter, uh, you'll know that that was not a bad idea. So she was out there working with these these teams, advising them, directing them, but then she was still dressing for dinner. Absolutely. Her, her son later said that she wore the, the dress of a farmer's wife during the daytime, but she always dressed for dinner. I find it just so fascinating that this woman who's had the experience there, had the experience that, that she did, certainly had the resources that she did, just didn't sit back. She became once again very hands-on in a way that helped enormous numbers of people that otherwise would not have received the help. And I can imagine what her friends thought going down to Florida in 1910. Now, um, she sadly had had a lengthy and and difficult battle with with cancer herself and and she died in 1918 and and her body came back to chicago one of the really sweetest things is uh when i heard you describe um her final resting place with with potter can you talk a little bit about that right when her husband had died she commissioned mckim mead and white to design this absolutely beautiful neoclassical canopy, if you will. It's a temple-like structure with fluted columns. It doesn't have a roof. It's just a canopy. And inside of it are two marble sarcophagi, one for Palmer and one for Bertha, or for Potter and one for Bertha. So, Tom, as we wind down here, I think it's an interesting moment to look at both Carolyn Astor and Bertha Palmer again. And we were talking earlier and you said there were really three dates in each of their lives where something significant happened. Can you talk about that and, and compare them at this point? Right. In Carolyn Astor's life, she had three pivotal years. 1853, when she married William Backhouse Astor. 1872, when she became involved in society and actually with um she actually invented society she invented the 400 didn't exist before 1872 and then in 1890 when uh her brother-in-law john jacob astor died and she usurped the title of mrs astor from her niece that year those are the three pivotal years in Carolyn Astor's life, and they're all social 
However, there were also three pivotal years in Bertha Palmer's life. 1871, when she rebuilt Chicago with her husband and got that big loan. Uh, 1890 and 1893, when she became the the head of the Women's Pavilion for the um, exposition. And then 1910, when she started the development of Southern Florida. All of those dates have to do with a businesswoman, not a socialite. So there is this great divide between these two women and the important dates in their lives. Thank you so much, Tom, for your work on Bertha Palmer and sharing her life and work with us. She really was an extraordinary woman, and there are certainly parts of her life that many listeners may not know about at all. So I think you've opened the door into yet another extraordinary life. What do you think people should really know about her if they know nothing about who she was? Well, the important thing about Bertha is that unlike most women of perhaps unlike any other woman in America of that period, she was not just a wealthy socialite who was content with dinner parties and teas. She was a very astute businesswoman. She was also an art patron and promoter of the arts. And she was a reformer. She was so, so concerned about the underprivileged classes. So she was a very, very well-rounded and deep woman, something that I don't think a lot of people appreciate about Bertha Palmer because most people really don't know that much about her. And I love the fact that she was willing to roll up her sleeves and either bake some pies or go out into the fields or down into the 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 homes for, for underprivileged and, and do a lot of that work. Am I right about that? Absolutely. You know, when she was in Florida, one of the fun facts about her life in Florida is once things got developing, uh, she took up fishing and golfing. And I always imagine Carolyn Astor ever picking up a golf club or a fishing rod. That just would not have happened. But here we have this, this woman who is certainly not afraid to come down from her ivory ledge uh, and have fun. I don't know if I could have played a game of golf with Bertha Palmer. She would have won. It's great. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much for joining me today for yet another extraordinary show. Thank you so much for all the work you do on Daytonian in Manhattan. Please, my listeners, follow Tom's blog. It's just extraordinary. Look out for his webinars and lectures as he opens more doors to some of the most fascinating characters of, of the Gilded Age. Tom, I always love the conversations that I have. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And to my listeners, if you have enjoyed this episode and any others, please leave your calling card by writing a review and spreading the word about the show. And I invite you to join the show as a patron on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support truly allows me to continue to produce the show and you'll have access to bonus content available only for patrons. So join me in two weeks for another look beneath the glitter and the gold I'll see you soon, and after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Gold.